This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the latest show of the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by three other journalists on this call today. We're going to be talking about things before the Grand Prix de France. Or should we say the Shark Grand Prix de France? Let's try and put the sponsors in there, give them some sort of credit. Dufons. I've never worn a Shark. The Dufons, sorry, Neil. Uh, <laughs> Neil Morrison there giving us his... Um, Neil, I expect quite a bit of French lessons, actually, throughout this podcast. Um, you know, we'll share a bit of your private life. Your living partner, the lovely Virginie, of course, is from France. So um, this is a chance for you. This is the one Grand Prix of the year where you can really show off some of your uh, trilingual chops. Oui, bien sûr. <laughs> Okay, well, don't, don't stretch yourself now, okay? You know, we don't want the, the, the listeners of the afraid. podcast. Yeah, the listeners of the podcast don't need, um, you know, a language tutorial as well. Um, Mr. David Emmett, of course, joins us as always. Dave, how are you doing? Uh, it's looking very sunny, I can see on your video there. Uh, that means, therefore, in the Netherlands, it's bright and pleasant. It is. It's actually been fantastic. Um, my wife and I went for a lovely long cycle ride to look at a garden on Sunday. So, you know, life was pretty good. That all, all sounds very the antithesis of the um, the adrenaline and macho-ness of MotoGP, Dave. Sounds yeah. very quaint. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know the, the life. It's uh, life is full of uh, light and shade, and you need the contrasts to, uh, to keep, make it interesting. Um, I'm delighted to say as well that on the podcast this week we've been joined by Japan's premier journalist in MotoGP, Mr. Akira Nishimura. Uh, Akira, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really, we should have you on the podcast for generally because your knowledge of MotoGP of course is is absolutely first class but then of course we also want to talk about Suzuki um and then your knowledge especially on this subject is is very prevalent but anyway welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to this program and I'm very proud and I'm very honored to join you uh, in this program uh, Paddock Pass podcast and I'm, I'm very sorry my English is very poor so I'm afraid you don't understand my my what 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 I say at all, but anyway, um, let's get started. <laughs> I don't know uh, what I'm. I'm not quite used to to this program, so let's go ahead. Don't worry, Kiro. It's it's kind of really about ninety percent waffle and you know ten percent insight. So you know, if you just keep talking, you'll be fine. Um. <clears throat> Gentlemen, before we start talking about um, the latest round of MotoGP this weekend in Le Mans, the Bugatti circuit, does anybody know why it's called the Bugatti circuit? I mean, why well, did they name it Bugatti? Uh, I can't remember if it's, I'm not sure if it's after a, a bloke or the car. Uh, I, I did know and I looked it up and I haven't got Wikipedia in front of me, so uh, I can't tell you, but uh, I'm fairly sure that a quick um uh, because it's not the full uh circuit de la sarthe which is the full length uh, track used by the uh, um by the car race or the by the 24 hour car race and which is really uh, considerably more uh, can uh, spectacular um but yeah not uh, not not quite sure what it's called the bucati uh, the the bucati circuit it's named after Ettore Bugatti, who is an Italian-born French automobile designer. Ah, there Bravo. you go. 
I would love to say that that's a fantastic piece of knowledge from Neil, but while Dave was going on, I could see him typing away on his keyboard. So there you go. The Wikipedia was easy to access after all. Yeah. Uh, guys, before before we talk about France, um, you know, and it is quite an emblematic uh, Grand Prix on the calendar. Of course, there's a big blue and yellow elephant in the room. Um, Suzuki, we still haven't had... Any official communication from Suzuki Global on the situation regarding the MotoGP uh, team? You know, of course, it's been well over a week since uh, we. What what do we base? What do we know basically that the team were informed on Monday of the Jerez test straight after the Grand Prix that MotoGP would cease. Uh, Suzuki would cease MotoGP activities. Um, since then, it's been largely radio silence. Isn't that right, Dave? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, as I understand it, certainly what the what uh, Motorsport dot com uh, reported, and also uh, some of the things that the people on the ground were saying, you know, because obviously people in Suzuki were not uh, were, were certainly not speaking on the record, but there was a certain amount of sort of you know uh, back chat, and basically they were sat down in the morning and told. Um, Suzuki pulling out, um, they got on with the test and they all looked a bit sort of uh, shell-shocked, I think. So, um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it came as a real, yeah, just completely out of the blue, came as a real, and, and literally is a bombshell. It just, it just left everyone shocked. Well, just before we talk a bit more about Suzuki, I want to ask guys for your favorite Suzukis in Grand Prix history. Is there any liveries or teams or riders or moments that stand out? For me, I'm going to peg the 1989 Pepsi Suzuki, the RGV on Schwantz. I don't think you get more iconic than that. Neil, I can see you kind of ready to pounce with a, a memory. Yeah, you just uh, stole my choice there. Had uh, wickedly fast, but also uh, quite brittle. That bike broke down a lot. And I think uh, had it not been so brittle and had uh, Schwantz not been so uh, crash happy that year, the, that title would have been his. But yeah, that was uh, an iconic color scheme. I think that was my first memory of watching Grand Prix racing. Schwantz uh, standing on his foot pegs, waving a big uh, American flag on that Pepsi Suzuki. So that'll always be the one that stands out for me as well. Akira? Yes, um, it is very difficult to choose only one race, but um, if I have to, uh, I would choose um, 1999 Marisian Grand Prix, the season opener of the 99 season. Uh, it it was the the it was the first race for Kenny Robas Jr. to race uh, as a Suzuki official rider, and he won the race there. I think, Dave. Uh, I mean, yes, obviously the uh, Pepsi and the Lucky Strike Suzukis were great, but if I had to choose um, the you know my favorite Suzuki, the best Suzuki is this year's bike because it is so good. Um, you know, it does everything. I think it's the best looking MotoGP bike at the moment. Um, I controversially, I think it looks better with the wings than it looks without it. Cause I was going back to looking at some of the pictures from like 17 and 18. Um, and it looks much better with the wings. Um, and the bike is just, you know, it's really competitive. It's really fast. It's got all the horsepower. It's got everything else. It's just a fantastic bike. Dave, while you're talking, carry on. Um, tell us about your understanding of why Suzuki may... I mean, we haven't had it in written black and white any um, ex explanation of the motivation or the reasons for stopping MotoGP for the second time in what the last 12 years. Um, you know, why have they taken this decision? 
you know, what is it? Is it just a global economy thing? I mean, what's what's your view on it? Well, I mean, first of all, we don't know because we still haven't uh, had an official announcement. Um, although it's you know, what is it? It's ten to eleven, so who knows? Maybe uh, maybe there'll be one uh, arriving in our mailboxes as we speak. Um, but yeah, we still haven't had a, an official explanation. The, the the understanding from what people have reported is that um, it's a basically it, it's a global economy issue. There are um, obviously the COVID pandemic has caused a certain number of economic problems. Um, then the war in Ukraine has uh, just added uh, on top of that. Just as it looked like the the global economy was starting to get back, you know, back to normal uh, and get some steam back in the economy, uh, the the war in Ukraine happened. Uh, there were already a lot of supply chain problems uh, uh, for all sorts of components. Um, all of the manufacturers are suffering the same. Uh, tire manufacturers are, are suffering the same. Um, that was already happening because the the, the 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 pandemic the pandemic basically left a whole bunch of sea freighters all in the wrong place in the world and and sort of threw the global economy into uh, sort of chaos. And um, then we had the war in Ukraine, and that just completely destroyed it. And if you look at, uh, you know, consumer confidence, if you look at inflation, if you look at all sorts of uh, other measures of the economy, things are just looking bad. That seems to be Suzuki's primary um, uh, motivation that they are not getting the value in their sales chain uh, from actually spending all of the the money that they do on MotoGP. Akira, what's the perspective on the ground there in Japan? Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, um, maybe there is a combination of many things, as David said, but uh, what I don't understand is um, why now? Because um, 11 years ago, when they uh, suspended the motorsport activity from uh, withdrawal, uh, withdrawal from MotoGP, it was a result of um, global uh, recession. And many manufacturers uh, went away from MotoGP, and support, uh, many sponsors went away from MotoGP. And as a result, uh, Suzuki finally decided to suspend the activity. But when they suspended the activity, they uh, at the same time they said they will return in 2014, I think. And but in fact, they uh, came back in 2015. But for this time, um, no manufacturers, no sponsors went away from MotoGP. So um, to be honest, I don't understand why they choose, if the rumor is true, um, I don't understand why they choose this to retire from MotoGP. And some said um, it's a result of the um, meeting of the board members, but there is no evidence yet. So we can say anything yet, any, uh, anything clear yet. Mm, so. I cannot sort out what I'm thinking, but uh, there is many questions, many ifs. So, Akira, yeah. why um, can you explain why you think we haven't had a press release? Because I mean, obviously, we've had the Golden Week holiday in Japan. Can you sort of explain a little bit about the timing of the whole thing? Hmm. Um, maybe I think uh, maybe we expected too much that they will they, they will um, publish press release and if the rumor is just a rumor they don't have to publish anything and if they are still in consideration level or they in discussion level in the company they don't have to either they don't have to publish either and 
if the rumor is true, uh, and the decision was so abrupt, so, uh, so sudden, and um, I don't know, uh, I don't know the reason why they they don't react at all. But um, if uh, there is too many ifs, but um, if they have to publish something, um, each wording would might be used uh, to the evidence when they have a lawsuit uh, against Dolna or something. So they have to be very careful. They have to very uh, meticulously choose their wording. So they, uh, so the internal, uh, so so the insights, the Suzuki, maybe they have to consult with the legal affair division or their uh, lawyer, and they have to need internal approval uh, from their boss and the boss of boss and the boss of boss of boss. So <laughs> maybe they take uh, many steps. That's why uh, they react. Just just maybe that uh, they don't react to anything. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for my two pennies worth, I think it's just, it is a legal matter, like you say. Yeah. Um, in MotoGP, of course, with the team's contracts with Dorna, um, there's essentially a five-year window. Um, the door to leave is only open in five-year periods. Yes. Um, Suzuki, of course, were only one year into yeah. their yeah. current five-year contract. Uh, so, you know, it, that door to get out of the series is actually you know, got very heavy hinges on it because, you know, it's not quite as easy as just bolting and that's it. Goodbye. See you later. Um, let's say, for example, pick a number out of the sky. Suzuki is spending 50 million euros a year on MotoGP. Um, if they have to cease that activity, uh, perhaps they have to pay Dorna 10 million as a penalty clause for terminating their contract earlier. They're still making a saving of 40 million. So somebody somewhere has done the math and decided we need to chop the budget. We need to save it like this. Um, and now it's just a question of how much Dorna as the promoters are going to lose an essential partner. Um, and those are the complicated matters that probably stop any any publication. But then I still feel from Suzuki's side that from a PR point of view, um, which of course is an important thing in racing. I mean, of course, as, as much as you want to develop your products and your hardware and whatever else, there's still a big branding um, association of being you know, involved in the championship. I think, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big own goal at the moment. You know, they need to put something out, some sort of communication to highlight their motivations. I think, um, you know, Akira asked why now? And it's, it's a very valid question because you look at Suzuki's project. They've got two guys fighting for the championship this year. Um, as David just said, they've got one of the best bikes on the grid. They've got a fantastic team with really, really strong personnel right the way through from top to bottom. Um, you know, everything's in place for this to be a successful operation until the uh, the end of their contract cycle with, with Dorn in 2026. Um, I guess from what we've heard from Paco Sanchez, Juan Mir's manager, he's been quite vocal about some things that um, were going on behind the scenes prior to this announcement. And he said that basically... Juan was ready to sign a contract extension with Suzuki um, and they were ready to maybe or they were planning to maybe announce it in France or in Mugello. <clears throat> so you have to think that that was part of the thinking. They thought, OK, we we have to announce this before we have any contracts with riders signed for 2023 and 2024, because then we would have to pay another penalty to the rider because we're basically breaching their contract. So perhaps that's a consideration as well. 
and not only riders. Um, everything we think about many things, um, everything seems to be irrational. And, you know, um, what I don't, um, many people don't understand why is uh, this about this uh, withdrawal is team contracted, uh, team employed, Libya support. Uh, and as a new team manager, and if I remember right, uh, when uh, he did the interview with the media, he said he, it's, it's not a single year contract. If I remember right, he said it's, it's a plural year. So uh, probably um, February and March uh, or in January, um, they haven't decided to withdraw from MotoGP. So if they have decided to withdraw from MotoGP, it should have been late March or April. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, late March, uh, uh, April would be <clears throat> fall into the time frame of uh, the you know Ukraine war having a serious effect on this. You know, really playing into their thinking because you know the the the, the war started. I think the end of February. <clears throat> Uh, beginning of March, that that was when things were looking really bad, and that would be a a, a good point to actually, uh, or that would be the point at which companies would be considering what they think is going to happen to the to the global economy. I guess I would like to ask uh, Akira. You know, there have been two things recently in the news where Suzuki has has been starring, and that's obviously uh, I think it was reported on Reuters that, um, or maybe it was the Associated Press. Sorry. Uh, that um, it was basically under investigation for potentially doctoring uh, emissions test results from some of its diesel vehicles. Um, and that could obviously lead to them having to recall these vehicles, maybe having to pay quite heavy fines. Um, and then there was also news that it's investing, I think, $1.4 billion worth of its funds into electric vehicles, into its plant in, in India, the development of that. So I'm just wondering, do you think either of these two things that have been in the news might have uh, affected this decision? Um, to be honest, I have no idea. But um, regarding the emission um, emission problem, emission scandal, um, I don't think it is it, it was a reason for their withdrawal, because um, I think Reuters reported that news at April 27, 8 or something. And um, their uh, withdrawal, uh, the rumor emerged uh, right after the right after the Spanish GP. So uh, it was just uh, four or five days. And I don't think um, they they can make such a quick decision. If they can make such a quick decision, they could have published press release very early. Akira, what's the um, what's the view of Suzuki in Japan as a brand? I mean, the, you know, I think, well, in my opinion at least, they seem to be a bit of a fading motorsport, you know, mm -hmm. power. Really, I mean, they used to be. I mean, Ricky Carmichael was winning Supercross championships with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, they they had a very strong presence and legacy and heritage mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. in off road. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, it just seems in recent years they've really, really cut back on on motorsport as a priority. Is is that how you see it in Japan? Um, you know, um, Suzuki has a very enthusiastic uh, racing fans all around the world, and so so is in Japan. And we have many um, Kevin Schwantz fans in Japan and uh, many Yoshimura Suzuki fans in Japan. Um, it's uh, let's say it's, it 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 is a some kind of tradition in Japanese road cycle racing history. 
but from uh, but many people understand uh, Suzuki is very um, um, what do you say in English um, frugal uh, with spending money conservative yeah um, especially the uh, the previous president of the company Osamu Suzuki uh, is he is very um, charismatic entrepreneur, but he was uh, very smart of uh, using their money. So uh, basically, he reportedly uh, he doesn't like uh, motorsport activities, but at the same time, he understands the importance of motorsport and the Japanese people uh, loves motorsports. Uh, he understands uh, he uh, the Suzuki brand has uh, a lot of fans. And so is uh, the current president of the company. Toshi Hirosuzuki, he is a huge uh, MotoGP fan. I think actually he watched the race uh, to uh, I, when I interviewed him in 2019. I think at the late of 2019, he said he watched the uh, race in uh, he he watched the America's GP in live broadcast. It means um, he has to he has to stay awake all through the night and in that race he uh alex Rins won the championship uh no, no alex Rins won the race you know so right after alex won the race he called to the to his engineer and i have to talk to alex to congratulate to congratulate congrats congratulate him and um and alex said to to the president thank you toshihiro i won the race and finally we did it we made it and uh, the technical engineer uh, technical chief engineer uh, he he was next to alex and he said to alex no no, no alex you have to say toshihiro -san, not toshihiro <laughs> and, <laughs> and anyway yeah anyway um toshihiro suzuki was a huge uh gp fans he told me and uh i think it, as I told this, as I told this, um, he was very proud of his. Uh, uh, he is very he is very proud of their products, Suzuki products. Mm -hmm. He said to me in the interview that um, he's he, um, no other manufacturers but us can produce such strange and peculiar bikes. That's why we are <laughs> Suzuki. And um, in English word, you say, uh, you spell out Suzuki, uh, S-U-Z-U-K-I-N-G, Suzuki. And probably it means um, Suzuki is very strong and Suzuki uh, has very muscular or something like that. But in Japanese word, Suzuki means uh, a little bit different. It's not Suzuki. Uh, in, in Japanese, we, we, we say Suzuki, but uh, king is uh, what do you say in English? Homonym, homonym oh, yeah. of homonym of virus or uh, fungus or germ or something like that. So Suzuki means uh, the carrier of Suzuki virus, and <laughs> Suzuki fans are very proud of it. And Toshihiro Suzuki knew the word. So I was quite surprised that his, uh, he he knew the word because um, Suzuki was I thought Suzuki was a very uh, a kind of slang. Um, 
among the people. So I don't think uh, the executive like him does know the world. But Toshihiro Suzuki said, because we are Suzuki. And he, and he said it with very proudly, and he is smiling by saying it. So I got a feeling that he likes motorcycles, he likes racing, he likes his fans. So considering many things, um, to be honest, I don't understand. He, it was him to decide this withdrawal. Maybe uh, some majority vote in the board members' meetings, but I don't know. Well, here on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to make a quick pause and perhaps, unlike Suzuki, we'll be right back. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're talking MotoGP pre-Le Mans, um, which of course has been dominated by one brand, one team, uh, one set of people, and a very surprising decision. Dave, um, the so far unconfirmed Suzuki withdrawal from the championship, um, it's creating a little bit of a, a political and contract minefield, isn't it? Why is that? Uh, well, it's basically all of this goes back to to Kawasaki's withdrawal and the global financial crisis in 2008. That um, that really completely shook up MotoGP. Up until then, <clears throat> I mean, 2006 was a fantastic year of racing. MotoGP was pretty much at its peak then. Uh, you had an American champion uh, just to add on to it. Then we came into 2007, 2008, and the 800s and the racing was uh, processional. Uh, it was not looking as good. There was uh, continued rumors about, you know, how long would Valentino Rossi go on ra uh, racing? Um, and then the global financial crisis came along. And at the end of 2008, um, Kawasaki announced they would be pulling out and a Honda, um, it came very, very close to actually Honda pulling out a MotoGP and Honda pulling out a MotoGP would have been an absolute body blow. Um, at the time, uh, Dorna had contracts with the MSMA. So it didn't have contracts with the individual manufacturers, but it had a contract with the MSMA for them to race. Um, the global financial crisis, I mean, all of those changes triggered a whole bunch of changes inside of MotoGP. Uh, we got the CRT teams, uh, you know, return to 1000cc. We got the CRT teams, which uh, brought new bikes into the grid, new, uh, uh, new teams. And although they were slow, it was also, way of demonstrating to the factories look we can manage without you um and then from 2016 there was probably the biggest change where we saw uh, obviously the teams get a lot more money from Dorna, a lot more direct support there was a price cap on the bikes agreed that was the big difference but then perhaps the biggest difference in this pertinent to this is that um Dorna was no longer signing contracts with the msma uh, they were signing contracts with individual factories. And so Dorna has six separate contracts with Suzuki, Yamaha, Honda, KTM, uh, Aprilia and Ducati. Um, so when Kawasaki pulled out, 
Dorna didn't really have much of a recourse. They they had a very indirect recourse with um, uh, with Kawasaki. They they didn't have very much leverage to to put pressure on them. In this case, uh, they have you know a, a cast iron contract directly with Suzuki, uh, where Suzuki commits to competing in MotoGP from 2022 to 2026. So if Suzuki's pull out, um, it's going to be you know it's it's a big deal. There has to be something. Uh, uh, well, that, that, that ha- there has to be a price to pay. We don't know what the price is. You said earlier maybe they're spending, you know, j- just name a figure fifty. I think it's more like thirty, thirty-five million a year, perhaps maybe forty million. Um, they're one of the smaller factories. Uh, they're the we know that KTM is spending over fifty million a year. Um, uh, we know that Honda is spending even more than that. Uh, budgets are difficult. They never do. They never discuss it. But yeah, I mean, it, it, they would be saving a significant amount of money. But you have to wonder what the financial penalties are, or what other penalties there are in uh, in those contracts. So to me, like that, that's like a really, really big deal. The fact that we have these individual contracts that changed the way the commitments to the the, the, the factories have to to Dorna, and it and it also gave Dorna a lot more leverage in uh, in situations like that. It was meant to prevent situations like this. It hasn't worked because obviously, you know, Suzuki are going to uh, are going to pull out. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, Dorna play it. It's um, it's based pretty much on a franchise system, isn't it? It strengthens the collaboration. In one sense, the team commits to MotoGP. And Dorna, as the promoters, commit to the team, um, both in terms of funding, shipping them around the world, whatever else, uh, you know, the small things like the, you know, the press and, and the publicity and, you know, access to passes or whatever else. Um, so, you know, it is uh, something whereby, you know, it, it's, it's a work. That's why I think also when we have rider injuries, you see teams and manufacturers hustling to try and get another rider on the grid, because if a rider has a substantial problem where he's going to miss five, six, seven events, half a season perhaps, then the factory is under pressure to fill that grid slot. Uh, if I were, if I ran a new team, I suddenly, you know, found this lottery ticket that's gone missing in the UK that's in, in the news currently, then <clears throat> if I wanted to launch a MotoGP team, it wouldn't be that easy. I mean, even for the Moto2 and Moto3 classes, I wouldn't be able just to waltz in with a huge couple of trucks and say, here are my riders, I want to go racing. You essentially have to buy a place in the championship. Um, you know, so there there are merits to that system. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's worth pointing out that the, the difference between Moto2 and MotoGP is, I mean, apart from visibility, um, um, MotoGP teams actually get a financial contribution of something over two million per rider. Um, it went up recently. I'm not entirely sure exactly how much. It, it but it is, leases but the bikes, Dave, doesn't ex- it? Yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. It covers the lease. It covers the lease of the bikes. It's a substantial uh, amount. The Moto Two, Moto Three teams don't get that. They get help with uh, with freight, and they get free tires, and they get free fuel, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, but they don't get um, uh, as much of a direct uh, cash, uh, su- uh, you know, support as the MotoGP teams do. So, I mean, maybe for Akira and for Neil, my next question is, if Suzuki do pull out, then, you know, there are two questions. Um, You know, do we see another manufacturer immediately taking those two grid slots as well as, you know, maybe inheriting all the staff that have been working for the team X-Star Suzuki? Um, And then what happens to the likes of Joami and Alex Rins? Because we're not talking about two B or C list riders here. We're talking about... Um, individuals that could enter a team as, as an A-list rider. So, 
Um, you know, will it be easy for Dorna to, to plug the gap? Well, if you listen to Dorna and the official statement that they made uh, in light of the the news coming out of the harass test last Monday, um, they say it's received high interest from official factories and independent teams. Um, the official factories that uh, have expressed high interest, I mean, that is yet to be seen. Whether we'll have another factory coming in, I think it's, it's very doubtful. Um, whether we'll have another manufacturer uh, come in to, to MotoGP in 2023. Um, uh, gas, gas, uh, Husqvarna, <laughs> CF Moto, all these brand new manufacturers. Yes, exactly, that uh, have their own original bikes, of course, that uh, certainly do not emanate from uh, the mountains in Austria. Um, but yes, independent teams, I think that's uh, that's quite obvious. There are and have been a number of teams in the smaller categories that have made no secret of their desire to step up to MotoGP in recent years. Um, Leopard, um, the Moto3 team, which runs Dennis Foggia, obviously, has won the Moto3 championship, I think, three times. Uh, that is one. Um, I think, um, you know, Cito Pons obviously has a great experience running a top level MotoGP team that has won MotoGP races in the past and maybe even fought for championships on occasion. Um, I think even there was uh, some whispers last week that uh, American Racing are keen to try and, uh, well, exploit Dorna's need for uh, a higher American presence um, by finding a place for Cameron Bobier um, on the MotoGP grid. So it does seem that there will certainly be, um, you, you know, those those two grid slots vacated by Suzuki uh, should be filled. Um, it also seems pretty clear that Aprilia will be running a satellite team next year. Um, the news, I think, before um, Suzuki's withdrawal was, was announced, um, or not announced, but reported, um, was that they might be coming into MotoGP with uh, Raslan Rosali's RNF team, which could uh, leave Yamaha. Um, maybe this situation will change that. Um, one of the new independent teams joining MotoGP could well run Satellite Aprilia's, but um, it's all speculation and maybe we'll, we'll be a little wiser to the situation um, once we've spoken to some people on the ground at Le Mans this weekend. So um, maybe some manufacturers feel the thought of Suzuki or maybe some independent teams, uh, some um, teams, I don't know, and some, some writers, uh, oh, no, no, sorry, um, Joan and uh, Alex can move to, uh, they, they can get seat somewhere. But I was just wondering what the team members will do some some um, some team members will be happy to move other manufacturers, other uh, other teams to work for other manufacturers, uh, for them to be happy in the MotoGP paddock. But some uh, some guys are working because they are working for under the name of Suzuki. So uh, for those who who love Suzuki, maybe uh, leaving, maybe next year. So. I don't know what they will do, uh, what they have to do. Uh, so it is not the problem only for manufacturers and uh, riders. It is the problem for or for those working in the public. Akira, will um will it be uh, like a Japanese process for the um the Japanese technicians in Suzuki? I mean, will we see like Sahara-san mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. staying inside the company but doing something completely different? Uh, I don't know what they will do, but um. Anyway, they uh, anyway they will be working for Suzuki uh, Suzuki Motor Corporation, even even after 
Suzuki retire from MotoGP, so it will be it will not a problem uh, for them. Maybe they maybe they will not maybe they will uh, uh, they will they will not happy to go away from MotoGP paddock, but they still they still have somewhere to work. But some guys uh, like um, I I don't know what to say in English, but um, some like um, freelance engineer, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the, for example, there's Tom O'Kane who uh, is, uh, oh, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, who, who's led a lot of the development program and who's uh, worked a lot on uh, with the test team. Uh, that's, I mean, that is some absolutely fantastic expertise. There, he's one of the, you know, he's one of the brightest guys in the paddock. Uh, you, it seems a shame for Suzuki to lose all that knowledge, but, you know, is he going to continue work for working for Suzuki in another capacity? Uh, he seems to be passionate about racing. So I think he'll be involved in racing somehow. Um, the, the question is with, uh, with whom, but yeah, I mean, that's That's going to be, uh, if someone can sort of fire, uh, hire him, but there's a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Everyone loses their jobs here and they have to find other jobs. And, you know, they're all good guys, uh, good guys and girls. Um, they're very, very smart and I'm sure they'll find other places but it's tough yeah it does depend on the contract cycle whether the you know the bulk of the team have one or two year deals i mean hopefully they do have two year deals so they would already be paid for 2023 but then like you say dave they i think we'll see a dispersal of that personnel maybe around the paddock um you know the the leadership and the management in suzuki is essentially japanese um you know you do have a little bit of an, a european core there and coming back to the timing earlier i do wonder if somebody like livio supo who you have to have a degree of sympathy for coming into the job and you know if he is going to be booted out after you know nine months then yeah. you know maybe maybe he was pushing to have a satellite maybe he was saying to the japanese we need two more suzukis on the grid and that might have been another straw that you know didn't assist the camels back uh, so to speak um but yeah it's uh it's a shame i mean let's let's talk about the riders for a moment um i mean it's shaken up the rider market somewhat we were expecting fabio quattararo to be confirmed as a yamaha rider any any day uh you know possibly around his home grand prix this weekend neil there might be an announcement but then you know juan mir unfortunately uh if he was asking reps or honda for say five million euros then he's not going to be able to ask for any more now is he because you know, the, the market has shifted firmly into the hands of the team because there's less spots and there's some premium quality available. Uh, so, you know, there's also been some talk that we've seen in the news about Paul Espargaro and his seat in, in, you know, Repsol Honda being even more unstable. Um, if we had to speculate for a moment, guys, uh, could could we see Paul being swapped out for Joanne Mir? Is that likely? Um, yes, I guess so. I think it's maybe something that would... Uh that would make sense. Um, you know, I think there were certainly rumors with well-placed journalists in, um, uh, in the Spanish media, um, in Jerez that were saying that, uh, you know, Paul has really kind of out of favor with Alberto Puig and, um, hasn't really made good on a, his preseason promise. His results have been pretty bad after the first, uh, race of the year in Qatar. Um, so you would say that yeah he's on he's on shaky ground very much um and you know Mir I think would be a an interesting fit there for sure um you know people at Suzuki have have been sort of saying like off the record that you know Joanne's riding style really is not a perfect fit for uh, the Suzuki bike you know because he's an aggressive rider he gains all of his time on the brakes I was watching him out on track in Hareth and you can see he's really 
aggressively throwing the bike around and compare that to Rins where he's so much more serene. Um, you, you, you do think that um, maybe a, a Ducati or a Honda would be more kind of in Mir's sort of style because he does like to grapple with the bike and, and kind of fight it. So I think that would make sense. Um, Rins, you know, where he goes is a is a really interesting question um, because, you know, personally, <clears throat> I'd love to see what he could do in a Yamaha because he has that sort of Yamaha-esque style. Um, obviously, Yamaha will be looking to tie down Fabio Quattararo. Fab, um, Franco Morbidelli is on a contract for 2023. However, you know, like uh, a two-year contract in MotoGP is never a totally sure thing when you are having the kind of season that Franco Morbidelli is having in the factory squad. When Lynn Jarvis said after the race, uh, in harass that he was pretty disappointed with Franco's um, Franco's performance. So you know, if, if if Franco doesn't have a an upturn in results in the next couple of weeks, you know, you would say that that is that a completely safe seat for him next year. I mean, I don't know. Um, I guess Aprilia is another uh, interesting destination that uh, will probably be under consideration. Yeah, Maverick Vinales, of course, yet to renew his contracts, and and Neil, I don't think we're ever going to see. Or hear Alex Rins described as serene anywhere else. So um, thank you for bringing that extra touch of class to the podcast, Dave. If you're Joanne Mir, do you go into the lines then? I mean, do you do what Paul um, ultimately accepted the challenge of and walking into Mark Marquez's team? I mean, I know Mir is is younger. He potentially could be the future of of Repsol Honda after Mark's contract finishes. Maybe he renews. Maybe he leaves MotoGP. Um, but it's still a tough ask to go into, you know, next to MM93, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, but then nobody ever, or riders never view it that way. They never see it that way. They're, they're always extremely sceptical whenever we sort of say, you know, how do you feel about going to the Lions stand again? No, no, it's not Mark's team. It's Repsol Honda team uh, until they get there and find out that it is actually Mark's team and not the Repsol Honda team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of, of course he's not going to be afraid. I actually, I would be interested to see him on that bike. I think he is the most, uh, or he would be uh, Repsol Honda's most talented rider since, uh, well, you'd probably have to say since Danny Pedrosa because uh, Jorge Lorenzo had an absolute shocker on the uh, shocker of a year on the bike. Um, mostly through crashes and accidents and the various uh, uh, other bits and pieces, um, but yeah, I think uh, I think Mir could actually suit that bike. I think he, I think he, it would work for him. We knew. I mean, Repsol Honda tried to sign Juan Mir before Suzuki. You know, they were they were courting him when he was already in Moto Two. So we know there is long-standing interest in him uh, from there. Um, Mir decided to go to Suzuki, and without Suzuki, um, then. Yeah, obviously, it, it would be a good place for him, for, for him to go. Uh, and I can't really see him there. there oh, I can't see a lot of other places where he might go apart from maybe Aprilia. Um, so, yeah, it it, it it looks like a dead cert. Unless Ducati suddenly decide, you know, they want a, a premium ride. I mean, you could argue for Juan Mir's merits ahead of, say, Jorge Martin, but... Uh, but there we go. I mean, Ducati certainly have their pick of the litter, don't they, uh, from their own stable. Um, this is the part of the show where I, le- I usually get shown up by Neil. But in my question to Akira, um, yeah. Takanakagami, I think, outside of the rookies, is the only rider now not to have won in the MotoGP class. Mm-hmm. Are you going to hit the buzzer on me there, Neil, or am I all right? <laughs> uh, I it's, right? A, it's a pity he doesn't show any potential. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, but I'm I'm saying Akira, if you were if you were you know um, 
you know, Honda Asia, if you were in yeah. charge, HRC, would mm -hmm. you give Taka another year? Um, I think he's now, is he 30 now or is he going to have his 30th birthday uh, this yes. year? He, he turned us yeah, so would would you give him another year or to give Agura more chance to develop in Moto2 or would you make the change? It, it is it is very difficult choice to choose uh, from these two guys. Uh, I know Taka very, for a very long time since he was, uh, he was, let's say he was a child. So I, I, uh, I would like to give him more opportunities, but uh, he's 50 year in MotoGP, I think. And his result is not good so far. So if he's he, if he wants to stay MotoGP next year, he have to show his potential uh, at least within two or three races. Uh, he have to climb on the podium. Uh, he have to win the race. And but even if he get the podium in in some uh, few races, maybe uh, I will show more potential in Moto2 class. Uh, maybe uh, it's, uh, I don't know who choose, uh, who choose just this. Uh, maybe them it's maybe Honda, I don't know. But uh, the younger age, the, uh, the more have the opportunity, more, more, maybe more potential. So it is easy to imagine. Uh, I will move up to MotoGP next year. And um, it is very likely, I think. But at the same time, I want to see Southeast Asian riders in MotoGP class. Uh, we don't have, we we don't, we haven't seen uh, South Asian, Southeast Asian riders since Hafiz. He was, uh, I think, he was the only rider uh, who who have competed in MotoGP class. So yeah, it was the first one for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I want to see uh, Somaki Chantra uh, somewhere in near future in MotoGP class. It's interesting. You can actually see what Honda think of uh, Taka Nakagami by going down to the pits because Nakagami is basically on the same bike that he was testing at, uh, at Sepang on um, and probably even testing at Jerez last year. He's on the old frame. He's on the old exhaust. Alex Marquez has got the new bits. Uh, he's got the new exhaust, the same exhaust that they've been using in the factory Honda team. Uh, the, 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 the chassis is different as well. So it, it, it it's clear that um you know attacker is not getting anything he's not getting anything to, to to help um so for example it was again it was alex marcus who was doing a lot of the testing um of, of or he was testing new bits new parts uh, at the Jerez test on monday um attacker wasn't attacker's riding around on an old bike just before we stop for another break um akira who, who is you know, in your opinion, Japan's strongest rider coming through? I mean, would it be Ayagura? Would it be maybe Ayumo Sasaki, who's looking very fast in Moto3? I mean, very competitive, every GP. Yeah, 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 Somebody yeah. like Suzuki? Uh... Yeah, um, I think um, I showed very uh, high potential uh, last week. And it's uh, it's typical his racing style and uh, he i believe he will win another i i don't say two or three uh, but i want to see three four five more races uh, so many people in japan believes uh, believe i have a good potential to compete in MotoGP, but at the same time uh, like you said uh, ayumu has good potential but uh, some misfortune and some uh, his mistakes and he didn't 
get uh, he he didn't show his potential enough. He only took once this year, I think, in on yeah. podium. Yeah. But uh, I believe uh, he can fight for the championship. So I want to see he, him winning the, winning the race. Uh, maybe next year, uh, maybe next week, or in uh, some European rounds, three, four, five times in a year. Yeah. Okay, we'll stop for another quick break now. And then like a Michelin front tire, we'll let out the rest of the hot air of this podcast when we come back. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the last section of the Panic Pass podcast. We're talking now um, Le Mans, but first there was a, a great story, uh, Dave Neil and Akira, this week by our colleague Matt Otsley, who found out there's been some skullduggery going on with Michelin's uh, tire pressures and the way the teams are kind of manipulating these uh, recommended or minimum settings. Um, Dave, first of all, just for the technical part, can you just give a, a quick uh, sort of summary of what Matt's story was about and, and what teams have been doing? Yeah, what what teams have been doing is basically riding with uh, front tyres below the minimum uh, pressure. There is actually a – it's in the rules, the minimum pressure. I think it's 1.9 bar for the uh, uh, for the front tyre. Um, they're not uh, – they've been riding below that. Um, and they've been doing it without being punished. Um it, the, the whole thing is quite complicated. Um, the, basically, the reason you do it is because with lower with a lower temperature, it keeps the uh, um, it keeps the temperature of the temperature of the tire lower, uh, and it gives a bit more grip. It, it helps. It makes it easier to manage the tire over the over the course of the race, and especially if you get stuck stuck behind other riders um, and you get a lot of heat onto the you know you get stuck in you don't get. The, the cool air to cool the tire off uh, uh, tire the pressures can go up and once pressures go up then the tire doesn't want to turn as a turn as easily um, that makes it much more difficult um, and you know Matt was basically leaked the tire pressure chart for Jerez where you saw Jorge Martin and um, uh, Pekka Banyaya were both riding basically the entire or more or less the entire race uh, with pressures below the minimum. Uh, normally, you would think that there would be punishments, but at the, at the moment, there's an agreement within the MSMA not to punish people because everybody's using different, uh, or, or they're using three different uh, tire sensors, um, uh, pressure sensors. And so it makes actually comparing the, uh, the, the tire pressures quite difficult um because of tolerance differences so you know each sensor measures the the, the pressure slightly differently and if you're uh, because we again we we're, we're talking about tiny differences it's not that someone is you know is riding around with 1.5 bar instead of 1.9 bar they're you know riding around with 1.85 or 1.86 or 1.87 uh, and those might be within the tolerance if you use measured it using a different sensor it might be just over or ju rather than just under um next year all that is going to change i mean i suppose 
spoke to Piero Taramasso about this at, uh, at Portimao. And he was saying, like, next year what they expect is uh, to have an agreement, uh, to have a spec uh, front tyre pressure sensor, which allows, you know, it gives the same same result for everybody. Um, that means that everyone will have the same sensor. They could, they're all on the same sort of base uh, base level, um, uh, and then they will start to Im- uh, implement some kind of punishment system. So if you do ride around with uh, pressures which are below the uh, below the minimum, then you will actually be punished. But th- th- so far this year. There is this gentleman's agreement among the MSMA not to punish each other, um, but there is a sort of a system of a warning. So if you do it once, then it might be considered um, accidental. Uh, if you do it uh, more than once, then it starts to look a, a little bit systematic, which again is why I think people were quite upset about the fact that there were two Ducati bikes there's, uh, at Jerez which were under the minimum pressure. It's something where I think you know it's been known about, um, Matt's story kind of broke it and made it much wider public knowledge. But then also Michelin, I think, were aware of the problem. I mean, I think there was already a plan to introduce penalties from 2023, Dave. Yeah, uh, not only is it known about, because the thing is, the uh, after the race, everyone gets the same tyre sheet showing uh, the, the not the exact tyre pressures, uh, but whether people were over or under the, uh, under the pressure. Um, so... It, it, They've had this for for years, so that they know exactly what's been going on. Uh, again, it's been about the agreement between the teams, uh, whether to or between the factories, basically about whether to punish it or not. I think you look at uh, what happened in Jerez. Banya's front tire pressure was under the minimum amount uh, for the entire race, um, and you can say that what he won that race by two tenths of a second. So you know that's probably the difference between Peko finishing first and Peko finishing second in that race. So on one side, you could say, you know, Yamaha has reason to feel slightly aggrieved. Uh, Fabio Quattararo probably has reason to feel slightly aggrieved. Um, but then, you know, front tyre pressure was such a massive, massive factor in the racing at Jerez and normally is or has been in recent years in MotoGP. Um, you know, perhaps if you wanted to give Ducati some leeway, you could say they were perhaps possibly planning for Peko to be behind Fabio in that race and then if he was behind Fabio in that race he would have been um, working his front tyre a little bit more I think you know clear space on that track in those conditions was absolutely paramount to to being successful um, so um, you know maybe that that is a factor however in Matt's article which was which was uh, very interesting you know the the whistleblower as such was um, saying that there are repeat offenders in, in this instance um, and it would seem that uh, the repeat offender being referred to is uh, is Ducati so um, so yeah it's uh, it's a complicated issue um, and uh, yeah one that uh, well let's see uh, what Ducati comment uh, this weekend just to point out the, uh, the, the when we talk about minimum tire pressures basically they have to be uh, above the minimum pressure for half of the uh, roughly half the race so in the case of uh, Jerez 12 laps out of 25 so it's not that they have to be you know above this minimum tire pressure from the start of the race or from the moment they leave the pits it's literally half the race so everyone on the grid on the starting grid at the start of the race has their front tire under pressure uh, below the minimum pressure and it will rise and so um uh, but the point is to calculate it so it rises to just 
just uh, at the minimum pressure and not just uh, below. So I, I do think if um, Pekka Banya had followed Fabio Quartararo for two laps, maybe it had come up just above the pressure. So yeah, again, without seeing the actual pressures, it's, it's impossible to know. It's another stark example, really, of the, the minor, minor details being so crucial in MotoGP as well. I think it's um, hard for general public to understand just how sticky and effective and how well-engineered these Michelin tyres are. Of course, you know, the company themselves have a goal to be more sustainable or use more sustainable ecological materials in construction of their racing slicks um, as, as we go on. So it's, it can be a little hard to get your head around um, the arbitrariness of, of the conditions sometimes because it does depend on so much how close you are to the, the bike in front of you, um, you know, the, the current air temperature, track temperature. I mean, there's lots of little factors mixed up. But one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Dave, especially is... Um, what about the political situation in the paddock? Because you have factories complaining about Ducati's ride height devices, wanting to get the uh, you know some of this technology banned. Um, if Ducati are now kind of also throwing a little bit of mud back the other way by taking this tactic with the tyres, is it making things a little bit more fractious? Um, to be honest, I don't think it could get a lot more fractious. There was a, there, a peace broke out during COVID in which everyone worked together uh, to freeze the rules and get uh, and get it back together again. Um, that sort of fell apart as soon as the pandemic started to ease up and um, everyone was allowed to develop again. And we had these uh, front-end ride height devices, which, you know, Ducati, uh, once again, I mean, you know, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. However, it just adds to lots of expenses. Um, it's a way, it's engineering your way around a particular limitation, in this case of the electronics. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's a huge benefit, but it, it's a lot of extra money and the 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 other manufacturers are not happy about it. And this will just, yeah, it, it'll, it'll anger a lot of um uh, it, it will make the MSMA a much more fractious uh, sort of organisation uh, uh, again. Well, going back to Michelin, of course, um, the Grand Prix this weekend is their home race. Uh, Le Mans has been, you know, the, the kind of consistent venue for the French Grand Prix for well over 20 years now. And France does have some other good Grand Prix tracks, Magna Corps, Paul Ricard. Um, you know, we have some special memories of the Bugatti circuit in Le Mans. Um, Akira, I mean, you know, what do you think of this particular racetrack? Because... You know, it's one of the shorter ones, I think 2.6 miles, um, just over four kilometers. We're going to see 27 laps um, in the MotoGP race. Maybe it's the second shortest behind Saxon Ring. Uh, for some reason, that, that kind of statistic jogs my memory. Last year, we saw Jack Miller take victory on the Ducati ahead of Johan Sarko and Fabio Quattararo. So the French didn't quite get their, you know, their, their winners there. Um, and Zarco, of course, is still the lap record holder from the Tech 3 Yamaha in 2018. So, um, you know, what kind of race or spectacle? I mean, is it somewhere that you'd like to see MotoGP racing? Um, and before to make some predictions, um, you know, in the one, Weather always play a very big part. So do you know the weather forecast for this weekend? Yeah, lovely. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> 28 so, degrees on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So anyone can win the race. <laughs> 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 so it is, hard to, uh, it is hard to predict who will win the race. But uh, for sure, I would like to see uh, Taka will make a good race. But uh, I don't know. And I hope both the riders can uh, will uh, fight for the victory but 
Uh, I I'm not sure uh, how they keep their morale, uh, their motivation to win the race uh, under the name of uh, the company who who wants to bring out from the race. So it is very interesting to see how Suzuki will do in, in Roman. Yeah, I'd love to see a Suzuki win. Um, would be well timed. One of those great little sporting narratives. Um, the rider with the most wins at Le Mans is uh, Jorge Lorenzo on five. Um, you know, indicating maybe it is a Yamaha track. But then Mark Marquez has three wins and has four pole positions. So Neil, um, are you going to bet for an Aprilia then this weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's tough to say. I'd, I mean, if you look at last year, before we had the we had a flag to flag race last year, and before the rain arrived we had two factory Yamahas up front and uh, I think one of the factory Ducatis Jack Miller was up in the mix as well so I think it's a it's a great track for Yamaha it it should be a great track for Ducati as well um I think it was only Mark Marquez's brilliance in 2019 that uh, stopped a Ducati whitewash I think their bikes were second third and fourth um so yeah I think uh, you would have to look at, at Fabio um as one of the leading names then you would have to look at maybe Miller Banyaya Zarco as well um and then you know mark marquez historically as you mentioned there ad has um has got good former on this track yet we're still yet to fully understand how much progress he made and honda made at the uh, harass test and whether that will be uh, applied here uh, obviously the front end is the, the issue that has been causing him the most consternation this year and uh le mans has uh many 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 heavy breaking points which uh put the, the the front end under extreme duress so um that remains to be seen but just because he's mark marquez you have to you have to factor him in in, in some way or form um dave neil's taken your tactic of naming half of the grid as potential <laughs> winners this weekend so are you going to choose someone from motor two uh, no, I'm going to uh, choose uh, Fabio Quartararo, who's going to win his uh, his home Grand Prix because I do think it's a Yamaha track. Um, despite the fact that it's a uh, it is a bit stop and goy, we've seen in previous years that you know Yamaha and Ducati have been strong. It's going to be interesting to see how well the Ducatis go on. But I think Fabio, I mean, A, it's his home Grand Prix. B, he's world champion. Uh, C, he is irritated <coughs> by what happened. Um, Last uh, last time out at Jerez, uh, uh, you know he 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 feels he should have won that race, um, and especially if we have this if there's this whole thing about you know well maybe it was uh, because Ducati were running riding running with illegal tire pressures that'll stimulate him more. It's going to be fantastic weather. That means that the grip is going to be good on the track, um, and yeah, I think uh, I think it. Uh, I really think this could be Fabio's weekend. I think it's tricky for Mark because uh, the places where you make up a lot of the time this uh, around the circuit are, tend to be sort of right-handers. Right-handers are, are really where it is, and that's his weak side. Um, especially, you know, like Turn 4, La Chapelle, uh, it's a fantastic. It's a fantastic corner because he's sort of a little bit off camber and he's downhill, uh, and it's like a, quite a sweeping corner. And it's exactly the sort of place where you, um, if you had a dicky right shoulder, uh, would end up washing out the front um, of your unreliable front end uh, uh, Honda. So I, I can easily see uh, riders crashing out there. Riders often do crash out there. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be tough for Mark. Um and yeah, for me, I think Fabio goes into the champ goes into the weekend as favourite. 
Dicky shoulders and Hondas. There we go. There's a prediction for you, dear listeners. Um, we're going to wrap up things now on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, I am Dave, you're working the Grand Prix from home. I am as well. Uh, after Jerez, I was in the MXGP Grand Prix of Italy last week, so there's no way I'm doing three weekends away from home. Uh, Neil, good luck. Remember to pack the sun cream, which, you know, is going to be a very bizarre change of culture uh, in <laughs> Le Mans. And uh, Akira, it's been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. We really hope to see you at the uh, Grand Prix circuit again soon when you can uh, get out of Japan safely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then, of course, guys, don't forget to send us any feedback or any questions on Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter or through the Patreon account. The Patreon account is going to be very busy this weekend. We'll be doing our note shows every week. Uh, we, sorry, every weekday, um, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And then, of course, back to the Paddock Pass podcast next week, reviewing what actually happened in France and then onwards and upwards throughout the calendar. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Here on the Paddock Pass Podcast, we're going to make a quick pause, and perhaps, unlike Suzuki, we'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was harsh, Adam. That was really harsh. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Sorry for disappearing as well. The call just cut out on me. I okay. don't know what happened there. Um, I've been talking to JB silently on my audio track. <clears throat>